And now that we're live, uh, we can take our Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're in the last chapter and the last two verses of this great book. And I'm excited to open those up to you. The title of our study this morning, as you can see, is The Gospel According to Ecclesiastes. Now, I wondered if that would catch any of you off guard. The Gospel According to Ecclesiastes. I've heard of John MacArthur's series, The Gospel According to Jesus, and The Gospel According to Paul, and The Gospel According to the uh, Disciples or Apostles. And those all make sense to me because they're all centered in the New Testament. But The Gospel According to Ecclesiastes? Yes. In fact, I, I wish I'd been the one to introduce that. Um, there have already been two books published several years ago with that title. And there's also The Gospel According to the Old Testament series. Uh, editor is Ian Duguid, a friend of mine that we attended Cambridge together. Uh, in that series, it covers the gospel according to many Old Testament saints and books, believe it or not, the gospel according to Abraham, to Joseph, to Moses, to Nahum, to Elijah and Elisha, to Job, to Naaman's slave girl, to Daniel, to, the Levit- to Leviticus, to Jonah, Esther, and the list goes on. You had no idea, I'm sure, that so many Old Testament saints and books have so much to do with the gospel. Or maybe you do, but they do. Uh, and I can assure you that they all knew the same gospel as well. The Bible is about the gospel from beginning to end. It is the great theme of the Bible, and that's why we have 66 books and not one page. It gives us the history of God's plan to create a people for himself through the work of Messiah that God promised in several covenants. The gospel is all over the scripture, so we wouldn't be surprised at all to find an entire book in the canon devoted to the gospel, and that's Ecclesiastes. Now, there is only one true gospel, and as I mentioned already, it's the same one throughout the Old Testament, but that's not to say that every Old Testament book presents the gospel in the same way. Well, the gospel is presented a number of different ways all throughout the Old Testament. Abraham's sacrifice and Isaac, it's there. It's also in the Passover meal that Israel had before God delivered them from Egypt. It is in the sacrificial system of Leviticus, which is a type of Christ, and I could go on and on. And Ecclesiastes has its own clever way. Uh, in fact, it is a way that it presents the gospel. It's a way that is close to the way that we, I think, are most familiar, a way that we present the gospel well. It claims first just how dark and absurd and hopeless life is, providing, <clears throat> I'm sorry, proving <clears throat> that this that this this life this absurd and hopeless life is uh is recognizable through various undeniable life experiences that the sage himself had the rich the hedonist the powerful and so on and against all that uh he highlights the brilliant ray of hope of the wise words of eternal life It's a presentation that we're we're all too familiar with. Open people's eyes to the reality of the fallen world and a depraved life in all its deceptive forms. Expose the futility of struggling 
for lasting gain, convince them of how fleeting and unknowable life is, and bring them to a place of desperation, and only then introduce the good news of God's gift of new life, or in New Covenant terminology, the gospel, salvation in Jesus Christ. In simple terms, the sage gives the bad news before he then gives the good news. The gospel is the greatest news to the worst possible human dilemma, which is why we have to give both, if the good news is to make any sense. I think I, think I can argue persuasively that the sage was also burdened to communicate his message, the message of salvation, that he felt really a sense of urgency to proclaim it. And here's how. After all is said and done, he made an, an effort to investigate and experiment with life under the sun and interpret his experiences ultimately through the lens of faith. And then he wrote it all down because it was that important. And then he taught it all to his son and to those who would care to listen. That sounds like someone who couldn't keep silent about this truth. He was burdened to tell everyone about it. Too many people in the world were deceived and lost for the sage to keep silent. He obviously wanted to bring them to their senses. And when it comes to people's souls, seeing them saved is really the utmost of the utmost urgency, especially for someone like him who led an official office of sage. They were expected to speak God's truth, and he did. He couldn't keep quiet, like Jeremiah, who couldn't keep quiet and had to proclaim God's truth because it was burning inside of him. Or the writer to the Hebrews who said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Or Paul, who made it clear that now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And more than this, verses 13 and 14 of our passage that are the culmination of the sage's work present the gospel in a way that communicates the need not only for non-Christians to embrace it, but also for Christians to proclaim it. It does both at the same time. And I might capture their essence this way. We who see life through the lens of faith and possess lasting gain must urge the lost to receive God's gift of new life, this intimate life with him that promises eternal reward and delivers from judgment. I think that's the essence of these two verses from a a man who was clearly a believer. Sage was certainly a believer. And he writes with urgency in hopes that those who read him will believe as well as go on to spread the word. At the end of this short but profound book of wisdom, he gives This bottom line, the the last word, the end of the matter, a proclamation that says, turn from this worldly life under the sun to the life that comes from above the sun where God is. Turn away from any futile attempt to secure lasting gain by your own way to the saving truth. That is what needs to be said. And he said it. And he presented it in a masterful way. You'd be 
sorely mistaken if you thought that his work here is just to be admired, like some great piece of literature, an example of exquisite Hebrew wisdom that we can appreciate. Oh, no. No, it's, it's the Word of God. And the Word of God is living and active, remember? God gave it to us to inform us about life and godliness so we can live it for his pleasure, for our benefit, and to bring it to the lost. Sage, sage's work calls people to, re, to, to read it and to take action. Some must receive God's gift of new life, this intimate life, with all its promises of eternal rewards and and a pardon from sin and judgment. And those of us who have, we need to proclaim it, all of it, to unsaved family and friends and co-workers and acquaintances as the opportunity presents itself. Ecclesiastes is every bit as much an Old Testament tract that calls unbelievers to faith in God's provision as it is a manual for how to witness to skeptics and worldly wise people that he that the Lord um, puts in our in our sphere of life. And the sage puts this wonderful tract and manual in our hands. And in another masterful stroke of literary genius, he actually evangelizes the lost and equips the saints at the same time in these two verses. Let's see how he pulls this off so that we might act on his words. Look at verse 13, just, just really the, <clears throat> the opening phrase there. And I want to say first that, that we who see life through the lens of faith and possess lasting gain must be candidly candidly to the lost about God's wisdom. Are there times when you speak candidly to the lost about their need of saving faith? When you tell them after days or weeks, maybe even months that, of dialogue about spiritual matters that life under the sun is a sham and that it ends very badly, even for those who seem to have mastered it, and that the only way to find lasting gain, lasting joy, eternal life, to escape divine judgment to come, is to turn from all human attempts to define life without God in it and embrace God's only acceptable provision for salvation, which is the work of Christ alone. Maybe? Yes? No? Which is it? It's an important question and we need to be confident in our answer. It's a sensitive subject, some says yes, but it's, it's a subject that needs to be broached. Well, it, it can be an offensive message, someone else says. Quite so. But it's designed that way so as to highlight the good news of eternal life. Do you speak candidly, candidly rather, to others when you have a chance or do you shrink in fear of the thought that, well, you're going to be ridiculed or perhaps persecuted? Beloved, Christians have the final word. We have the final word for life and godliness, and we need to speak it. We need to be timely, yes, tactful, absolutely clever, without a doubt, loving, no question, but speak the truth. And this is what the sage has done. We read, the conclusion when everything has been heard is this. 
Now, before we talk more specifically about what this conclusion is, let's understand where it came from. It came from everything that has been heard in his book. Now, as you know, he summarizes his experiences and observations about unredeemed living from every imaginable vantage point under the sun, and the truth is not pretty. Now, life is both fleeting, it's past finding out, therefore it's very hopeless. And we talked last time about how the sage of Ecclesiastes studied life without the lens of covenant faith he explored pleasure and riches and power first without seeing them through this lens. Do you remember? We explained it as the sage taking off his glasses of faith. And when he did that, he saw that pleasure led ultimately to hedonism and riches are more trouble than they're worth and power leads ultimately to tyranny. Besides that, these promise nothing nothing lasting, and they, they come to an abrupt end at death. Now you can see just how dismal and bleak and hopeless life really is when you see it without the glasses of faith in a covenant God. We know that many people without God of the Bible, without God in their lives, the God of the Bible, they've done a, a pretty good job of redefining the harsh realities of life. We've got to give them credit. They adapt well in order to find reasons to keep on going as they are. But even the best representatives of humanity still battle the nagging and frustrating, frustrating randomness of life that rears up to utterly ruin their plans more often than they care to admit. And they have... And, and the little that they have, they've, they've managed to save all through their toiling in life, is taken away abruptly in death. And when the sage then puts his covenant faith glasses back on, he saw something completely different. Pleasure and riches and power, well, they're not evil in and of themselves to those who have received God's gift of new life. No, when it comes to pleasure, Christians possess a joy that is deep and abiding and contagious. And their lot, if it should include great riches, well, they enjoy those riches in a way that pleases God, represents him, which would also include meeting the needs of others. And power is something that everyone has to varying degrees, but no matter how much or how little, the godly wise person will take his cue from the omnipotent Lord and wield his power responsibly. There is such a huge difference in the way that the godly wise perceive and live life than the worldly wise do. Now those of us who have been on the receiving end of God's new life in Christ, this intimate life, and, and know what it means to be willing to lose our lives this side of heaven in order to save them in eternity and, and understand how life is really meant to be lived, that with new life in Christ, everything we do matters, that it all makes a difference in kingdom living, we must not be silent. We can't be quiet. Who else can testify to all this but us? 
The Apostle Paul actually asked the same rhetorical question a couple of different ways in Romans 10. You might remember verse 14. He says, How are they to call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim it to them? And how can anyone proclaim it unless God sends him? Well, the sage was clearly sent. And he preached. And people heard his words for centuries. And here's what they learned. The sage looked at every aspect of life at its best. And he demonstrated that life's best is a flash in the pan compared to eternity and cannot keep one from judgment to come. Now, this is the conclusion, the end of the matter, the long and short of it. And it's not good. It's rather bleak. It's dismal. In fact, it's utterly hopeless. And it's in this context in which he then offers another way. He urges them, and likewise, so must we, urge them to receive God's gift of new life and, or new and intimate life with him. Urge them to do this. This is in the rest of verse 13. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to everyone. Now, this plea uses two expressions that I want to take some time with. And when they're used together, they point to an intimate relationship with God. The first expression is the fear of God. And we've looked at fear in this book a few times already. And we've argued that it's it's one of those all-encompassing words like thankfulness or praise or love that the Bible uses to characterize one's life in Christ. It certainly affects how we approach God. Fear of God in the Bible is best understood as being something less than dread and more than respect. Something like reverential awe. That's the idea. God's holiness causes us to draw near to him, but... As at the same time, only in a way that's acceptable to him. Fearing God also refers to our worship of him. We regard and we desire him more than we, we regard anyone else. We worship and we exalt him. In this way, fear equates to loving God. Fear of God and love of God in saving faith actually amount to the same thing. We put him first in our lives. We regard him more than anybody else. We exalt him more than anything else. Deuteronomy uses these two words, love and fear for God, synonymously. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, it talks about fearing God. If only they had such a heart in them to fear me, God says. And then in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, we, we, uh, we hear love of God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, mentions both together. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Verse 10, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 20 does as well. You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve him and cling to him. That's love. So we have fear and love. And as I say, it's really the same thing when God is the object in saving faith. 
You know, it's noteworthy that in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, God, God charges Israel with distorting their love for him and rejects them when they show no reverential awe for who he is, but rather they reduce the faith to a bunch of rules taught by men. Listen, because this people approach me with their words and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and their reverence for me consists of the commandment of men. Did you catch that? They have no reverential awe for God that's grounded in Scripture. They simply perform a respectful duty out of tradition. And he'll have none of that. This brings me to comment on the second phrase, and that is keep his commandments. So we, we have the fear of God, and now we have keep his commandments, which I'm arguing the two together refer to an intimate relationship with God. To keep his commandments, the phrase, the phrase complements the first phrase. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A life of obedience to God's word is a solid expression of a believer's love for him. And in fact, it is also a solid expression of a believer's fear, proper fear and reverence of God. Listen to Psalm 19. It's very helpful when you know that Hebrew poetry is built primarily on parallelism. So you'll notice the parallel words for the scripture. Here they are. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The judgment of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Huh. According to the parallels in those verses, fear in this context is clearly a synonym for God's commandments. Right? Do you see that? It refers to it refers to the same thing as law and testimony and precepts and judgments. So what's going on here? Well, it's really a figurative way, a figurative way of referring <clears throat> to the law by referring to what the law produces or what is the result of obeying the law. So in this case, the psalmist puts the effect of the law, which is fear, for the law itself. In English, um, English grammar, this is called metonymy. So he puts the result for the cause. Um, and the cause is the law, the result is the fear. The law causes the fear, so he refers to the law as the fear of God. In other words, Scripture produces in us a reverential awe for God that is pure and acceptable in God's sight. We use the same figure, by the way, in our own conversations all the time. You probably don't even realize. We might refer, uh, for example, to somebody's car as a nice ride. Well, that's a nice ride. And what we mean by that is that riding is the result of driving the nice car. So instead of referring to the nice car, we say a nice ride. Fear is the result of obedience to God's law, and here it stands for law. 
So the fear of God, the love of God, God's commandments, they all together point to this intimate relationship with God. So as I say, the sage puts them together in order to speak of this intimate relationship. And, and what about this intimate relationship with God anyway? What about it? Well, the verse calls us to urge people who don't have one with God to receive it, to embrace it. It's, it's the one relationship that everyone without exception needs in this world. People need a lot of things. Not everybody needs all the same things, but this one, everyone needs. The verse says, because this applies to everyone, the sage tells his sons, others, uh, others that he teaches, and of course all future generations who pick up his work and read it. You see then, not only is Ecclesiastes a great Old Testament track, but the sage himself is a worthy evangelist. And his desire to make known his findings and, and interpret them by the light of his covenant faith challenges all of us new covenant people of God to follow his lead. Actually, we can do a better job of it. Did you know that? We can because we live in the new covenant era. Since the hope of salvation that Ecclesiastes presents has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who, by the way, commissions us also to go and make disciples, we can do a much better job than the sage. That might sound a bit convicting, but we can. And we would do well to use the sage and his writings in conjunction with the New Testament. We'll do that at the very end in, uh, in uh, a little bit. But let me hasten on to say only in this way well, they have God's promise of lasting reward and deliverance from condemnation if they embrace this new life, this new intimate life with God. That's the punchline of verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So it's a motivation to go ahead and embrace the message of salvation, the message that says God's got a new life for you. He's, he gifts it, and, and you should receive it. This verse sounds rather grim by itself, verse 14, but keep in mind that it belongs to a, a passage that promises eternal reward and to a book that was written to give true hope, all right? So with that in mind, a, it has a little bit of a different flavor. The immediate and greater context in which this verse sits makes all the difference in the world as to how we understand it. Without knowing what we know to be true about the book of Ecclesiastes and the goals of the sage himself, this verse not only sounds bleak, but is somewhat confusing from where we Christians stand on the other side of the cross from the sage. So let's add some clarity to it and, and highlight the positive aspect of it at the same time. I'll start first by stating that verse 14 gives us the reason for pleading with the lost to receive God's gift of new life. It gives us the reason. And here it is. There will be a reckoning someday. There will be a divine judgment and that waits for all who stand at odds with God who have decided to go their own way away from God, which is an immoral and sinful way. There will be a reckoning someday. 
all walks of life that go in a different direction than the Christian life dead end in divine judgment. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. The gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life and there are few who find it. Enter through the narrow gate. Now, those who travel a way that is not the way of life will be judged on the basis, then, of what they have done. Even things done in secret, which I believe here to refer to sins not so much committed behind closed doors, but sins that are committed in the heart, the secret place that only you and God know about. Whether whether or not they are ever expressed in behavior— God condemns people, you know, on the level of the thought life. Now, that may seem simple enough, but the verse says much more. And we know that because of the surprising mention of moral or good things that God will also judge at the end of time. Huh? Why would God judge anyone for committing moral acts? That just doesn't make sense. Well, some of you are thinking, well, well, wait a minute, I know the sage is referring to those who are religious, yes, and, and think that they can guarantee themselves a spot in heaven because they're, they're being morally good. Well, that's a nice try. That's not quite right, though. It's, it's true that the religious people think that way, at least at the time of the sage, and it's also true that the, the sage exposes and condemns self-righteous Uh, religious activity. He did so in chapter 2. So your thinking is certainly theologically correct, but there's no evidence that the sage is addressing religious people here. I believe he's referring to genuine acts of righteousness by those who possess God's gift of new life. But how can that possibly be the case if God judges them? Well, here's where I believe the confusion arises if we don't incorporate our theology of end-time judgment. End-time judgment. We have it on good report from the New Testament that God will judge the living and the dead, the great and the small, who never trusted in his plan of salvation. We know this. Since they refused to trust the work of Christ alone, and for Old Testament saints, that's the work that Christ will come and do, God will measure their own works against his standard of holiness and perfection. That's why it says in a number of places in Scripture, even in the book of Revelation, that God judges people on the basis of their works. You don't want to trust in the work of Christ alone? You want to go it alone? Then God will judge your works by his perfect standard. And when they fall short, he will condemn them. Sad start to eternity, to be sure. And we also know that God will judge the righteous works of saints. And some some Christians see this judgment taking place at a different time from the one that we've just mentioned. Whether it does or not, the point is that God will turn his attention to the fruit of our labor done in Jesus' name our investments in the kingdom that we made while we lived our lives on this earth, and he will assess them with fire. Now, this is not a judicial judgment. 
This is an assessment of work by the, his elect saints. Sins are not in view here. Jesus already paid for those. Rather, he will assess how we used our time and our energies, our resources, resources for the kingdom. Did we waste them or use them to promote kingdom living? It's a good question we need to constantly ask ourselves. Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 3 confirms that God will reward us at this time. So while the sage's statement is correct, God will judge works that are both good and bad, the specifics of that judgment were most likely hidden from the sage, along with other mysteries that came to light only after the New Testament was written. He knew there would be a day of reckoning, though, for both covenant believers and unbelievers. He didn't know the details. Now that we do, we have a greater understanding of the fulfillment of this verse. It warns those who have not embraced God's gift of new life to do so immediately. And it also encourages us who have been delivered from judicial judgment uh, to proclaim it to others and to use our time wisely as we have opportunity to, uh, to do that and look forward to this great time where we can present our investment to God face to face and receive our inheritance. God's judgment is not a popular subject, you know, certainly not in our postmodern, post-Christian America, but it is a necessary component of the gospel and people need to hear it. Now, how you communicate it in full to the lost in your, in your lives calls for discernment and tact and timing. But we have to introduce it accurately and in context. So many churches work very hard at ignoring that, presenting a gospel without any of that, without judgment. The closest they get to mentioning it is in their assurance to people that Jesus has forgiven them. But forgiven them from what and why? And they don't care to elaborate on that. And this makes for a very truncated and partial gospel. And a gospel that is only partially right makes those who embrace it only partial Christians, which are no Christians at all. Leaving out any element of the gospel is as dangerous as a doctor leaving out the fact that you have cancer from his diagnosis. It's a terrible, terrible thing. We have to be accurate. We have to be careful. Now, beloved, there is no room for timidity in the Christian life. We need to pronounce this boldly. We need to pronounce it it proudly. We're either proud of our faith or we're not. Either we live it unashamedly and speak it boldly, or we're like the salt that Jesus said lost its saltiness and is good for nothing. If you're embarrassed for Christ, you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Everyone who confesses me before people, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before people, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Well, the apostles certainly 
were not those who were shy. In fact, they boldly proclaimed the gospel to their neighbors in the face of severe persecution after Jesus rose. Before Jesus rose, they were a different bunch. After he rose, they were transformed and they were bold. We think of Peter and John in Acts 4.20 who replied to a threatening Sanhedrin. We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. We cannot stop. And then there's Paul's declaration in 1 Corinthians 9.16. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now this stance shared by them is very impressive and it's inspiring. And like them, we have something to say. We have something to say. Christians are never at a loss for words. And what we have to say is important and it's urgent. We have the words of eternal life. The Apostle Paul was never at a loss for words when it came to evangelizing the lost. He was tactful and clever and flexible, but always true to the message and proclaimed it regularly. He followed in the steps of the sage, and he was not shy to give the bottom line word on the matter of life and death. We heard it read this morning in our scripture reading, Romans chapter 11. We find in just verses 7 and 8, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. But to those who are self-serving and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he will give wrath and indignation. It's very difficult to misunderstand those words. Beloved, we have been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. We see life through the lens of faith, and we now possess lasting gain. Let's not hoard the blessing. But let's urge the lost in our families, in our circles of friends, those at the office or at the gym, whomever, wherever, and wherever we meet them to receive God's gift of new intimate life in Christ, assuring them, as Paul does, that there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of mankind who does evil for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who practices a righteousness in Christ, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for this time together that we could spend in your word, and especially this portion, brief though it may be, so very profound we Ask, O God, that you will bring it to our remembrance throughout the week, that we might be emboldened to live the truth and and to proclaim the truth where we can, that you might be honored and that people who are lost might come to know the truth and that you would be pleased to grant faith and repentance as a result. We're thankful, O God, that we have the truth, and that we can proclaim it. We pray that we'd be responsible with it. Unlike the sage, we would, we would sense the urgency to get the word out before the ship goes down. Lord, we pray with all our heart that we would 
that we would not shy away from such a, a holy vocation and that as we persist and persevere, you would be pleased, you would be honored, and that the local church would benefit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.